This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, Tim Flannery, head of the Climate Council, author and evolutionary historian, joined me to talk about his new book, Europe, A Natural History. Then, Dr Tamara Wood, lecturer in law at the University of Tasmania and affiliate at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW, joined me on the show to talk about her article in the Lowy's The Interpreter, Blocking Asylum by Sea and by Air. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. My name is Amy Mullins. Thank you to uh, everyone who is um, tuning in today. I highly appreciate it and I uh, hope you can stay with me for the rest of the show. Uh, coming up on today's show, I have Ben Eltham coming in to talk about federal politics and uh, we'll be talking about the sitting week that is uh, coming up and what exactly we'll be discussing uh, or what the politicians will be discussing. Certainly one topic which has come to the fore is the medical evacuation bill, which uh, essentially is all about asylum seekers that are still on Nauru and uh, whether the opposition and the crossbench will band together to... uh, get the necessary votes to get this particular bill through. It's been put forward by Karen Phelps and Tim Storer and uh, we'll see exactly what happens. Uh, There's a lot of people saying that Labor might run scared on this one because the coalition has come out with some pretty... Uh, hysterical language and uh, you just have to look at the interview with Christopher Pine on Insiders on Sunday to see the types of language that they're using. They're calling it shortens law and shortens bill. So certainly... Uh, This is going to be a very interesting one in terms of the politics of the issue, but there's also other issues that were left unresolved at the end of December uh, and particularly the encryption bill that was rushed through. Labor eventually did a complete turnaround and decided to support it and said they would get amendments through at the beginning of Parliament this year. Um, There's so many other issues more important potentially uh, in terms of the way that it's going to affect our lives in the much longer term. This uh, medical evacuation bill, although very important, is um, probably a short-term thing. Hopefully, once uh, we get refugees and asylum seekers off Nauru and resettled, one day that will happen. Uh, We have seen the children at least moved, so that is one thing. Uh, Coming up after Ben, I'm speaking to Tim Flannery. He uh, is a well-known Australian. He was the Australian of the Year quite a few years ago now, and he's a climate scientist and advocate. He's also a historian and a paleontologist. And I'll be speaking with Tim Flannery about his new book, Europe, A Natural History, which is out through text publishing. And it's really looking at uh, the very long, and I mean by millennia long epochs and all that stuff uh, long there's a who knew that Europe had such a fascinating natural history and that it was very very diverse and changing and that we had a massive uh, what appears to be asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs Uh, so we're going to be talking that far back into time and discovering the um, I guess the highways that connected Europe and Asia and North America 
so it's really an, a different time, obviously, but it uh, definitely puts this time into perspective, I think. And then finally, I'm speaking with Dr. Tamara Wood, who is based at the Andrew and Renata Kaldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. And uh, she has co-written an article for the Lowy's Interpreter online, and it's called Blocking Asylum by Sea and by Air, and looks at Australia's legal obligations when it comes to those who seek asylum, particularly by air, by plane, and um, and looking at those case studies that have been revealed through the ABC's Four Corners program, whereby we saw Saudi women who were coming to Australia, um, some without male accompanying people, family members to accompany them, uh, which is a Saudi issue, not an Australian issue. Um, but we saw apparently or allegedly uh, Australian border force asking as to where their um, male counterparts were, which is quite shocking. And uh, certainly others were particularly surprised and shocked that this is the kind of questioning that Australians might be engaging in. So uh, we'll be looking at that issue in a bit more detail, but particularly the legal elements of that. So big show today. Have with me in the studio Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me live in the studio to discuss federal politics. Good Hello. morning, Amy. How you going? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah? Yeah. Feeling the Tuesday vibes? Um, depends what you mean by Tuesday vibes. Well, it's better than the Monday vibes, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. I feel like I'm edging slowly towards One step closer an to the upward weekend. trajectory. <laughs> Tomorrow is hump day <laughs> yes. vibes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's positive. I know. Yeah. I know. I think that's why I'm so glad my show's on a Tuesday. I feel like it's. I, I'm already, you know, into it by Tuesday. Absolutely. Mentally aware. Um, yeah, I don't envy Dylan, Dylan and Coolia who have to come in straight off a Sunday. Yeah, look, I, I take my hat off to those guys. They're yeah. always doing such interesting things on a Monday morning. They are. They are. And... Uh, much inspiring work goes on at this station. So many great interviews that uh, I've been meaning to catch up on that one can do so on Triple R On Demand. Oh, yeah. Simon and Lauren have been doing some cracking stuff they lately. They have. Yeah. So true. Always check out Breaking and Entering yeah. on, the, on, the, on Demand. Yes. Very good. And Enio Styles had Masego in the studio the other day and I nearly died. <laughs> did you come in, did you? I was already here. <laughs> yeah, he came right. in during my show. Nice. It was a pre-record yeah. and I actually freaked out and was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's Masego. <laughs> he was like, he's the biggest deal to me. Yeah. And I don't know if many other people knew who he was, but I was like freaking out yeah we all have those kind of artists yeah. that are our own rock stars exactly aren't they i, I told know? simon winkler afterwards i'm like he's like my elvis he's <laughs> like he's that big to me <laughs> which is why i didn't say anything to him i was so shy yeah i was like i can't say anything because i think i'll just not have words you were struck dumb yeah completely oh that's which beautiful. is rare for me that's so, lovely yeah there you go <laughs> what can i say so no autographs nothing oh no no <laughs> Couldn't even go near him. I waited till he got went into the pre-record before I went outside. It's just too scary. Oh, I missed an opportunity there. Amy. Oh no, I deliberately missed that opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather keep the the idealised, you know, vision of my first meeting with my idol. <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> I'm going to be prepared for the for next time. So, Ben, with that great um, uplifting story, 
let's get into some downlifting stories uh, with federal politics, which is um, already down in the gutter at the moment. Oh, yes, it's in the gutter. It's well in the and mud. truly. Um, and I think it'll stay there all the way through to the federal election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we have seen um, a lot of election campaigning already, so we are pretty much in unofficial election campaign mode. No doubt mode. about that. Scott Morrison gave a speech to the National Press Club yesterday, which was very much electioneering, uh, talking about the threats to Australia's security and how only the coalition could meet them, safeguarding Australia. He had a pamphlet with a big helicopter on it. Oh, hello. Uh, so really all that was required, you know, was extra Australian flags and he would have been in full Tony Abbott mode. Oh, amazing. Do you mention Border Force? Uh, he mentioned a lot of Operation Sovereign Borders. Nice. Yeah, yeah, he talked a His lot favorite. about that. Well, he was really the, the minister who birthed it. Um, yes, if that's the right word for <laughs> this rough beast that yes. is slouched towards Bethlehem. The on-water matters that yes. aren't to be spoken of. Indeed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, um, it's the usual kind of coalition posturing, you know, only they can protect the borders, uh, Labor can't be trusted, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. Um, this is all, of course, in the context of the vote in Parliament that's looming over the medical evacuation bill that's being put forward by the independents, including Karen Phelps. Uh, this is to get sick people, mm. of whom nearly all of the inmates of the prison in Manus Island and in Nauru are sick. Yes, uh, well, th- Christopher Pine basically admitted that. Christopher Pine admitted that on the weekend um, on ABC Insiders. Um, a, a very good question by Barry Cassidy, mm. actually, asking him, well, OK... Um, why are all of them sick? Why do nearly all yes. of them need to be brought to Australia? And, of course... He didn't you know, answer that couldn't question. Couldn't answer that. But no. the answer is because Australia has made them sick. We've locked them up. We've incarcerated them mm-hmm. um, in cruel and unusual conditions. And, and now now they are very sick mentally and physically. Yeah. Um, so that, that kind of gives you the, the background of, of why this is necessary. It's been campaigned for, for many years, obviously, by refugee advocates. And in, I think doctors have played a really important mm. role in this debate too. Um, I read yesterday that something like 5,000 doctors have signed a petition uh, backing this bill. Um, but, of course, it will need the major parties to support it if it is to succeed. Uh, and so far, uh, we know that the coalition will oppose it and we don't know whether Labor will support it. They're still prevaricating and we don't really know what Labor's position on this is going to be. Well, it seems like they're unlikely to um, to go for it based on their current posturing. Uh, it is a bit of a tragedy to see that, you know, once they were quite strong on this issue, I guess at the end of last year is when it was being debated uh, in the Senate and was going to be brought down to the House. And, of course, we uh, ended Parliament for the years to avoid a vote at the end of the year. Yeah, so Labor has given three conditions on which they will support the bill, um, and one of them, ironically, is that the bill will not apply to any future refugees who arrive, uh, which you'd have to say is not much of a bill, if that's mm. the case. Yeah, it's um, limited in its purview. Yeah, it does obviously get some of the current refugees off the island and to medical care in Australia. Um, but 
you know, of course, Labor's really playing political games here. That mm. They refuse to acknowledge the situation, which is that Australia's locked up these people, innocent people who've done nothing wrong, and we've tortured them effectively. Yeah. Um, Labor's still trapped in this kind of uh, race to the bottom of the coalition where they refuse to be wedged in the political term. I mean, if you, if you hear journalists say Labor doesn't want to be wedged on this stuff, what that means is Labor doesn't like the coalition saying things like Labor's weak on board, Mm. Labor's weak on border security. Labor will restart the boats, whatever the hell that means. Um, And because Labor's so sensitive to rhetoric, to political attacks on immigration policy, they always, in the end, buckle when the push comes to shove on these kind of issues. And I expect them to buckle on this too. Mm. Well, they buckled on encryption, didn't they? And that was all about national security and whether we would be safe over the holidays. They're absolutely terrified of being portrayed as somehow weak as somehow uh, not tough enough on these kind of symbolic issues which you know it has to be pointed out once again have nothing to do with the security of our borders Mm -hmm. have nothing to do with protecting us from terrorism they are as the analysts sometimes call it security theater it's all about uh, playing the game or presenting a theater of security which is why the coalition love it so much because they can pose in front of flags and men with guns and scary looking boats and helicopters Helicopters and so on and so forth. Um, and that makes them appear as though they're tough on these kind of issues. Um, the reality, of course, is very different. What we're being tough on uh, a bunch of innocent people who've done nothing more than seek asylum as they are entitled to under international law. Yes. And the reason why this uh, bill came forward was initially because there were quite a number of children over there who were very unwell, some were suicidal, and uh, that was really what got got, I guess, the public sentiment behind the bill was, uh, I guess, seeing these images of children who were really, really distressed. What do you think is going to happen now that essentially we've been told the children are no longer uh, on the islands? Look, um, it's too early to say, Amy, but you'd have to be... It's very hard to be optimistic in the space of asylum seeker policy because the last 20 years have been pretty much unremittingly depressing. You know, um, we seem to lurch from new outrage to new outrage. You know, a man being murdered on Manus Island by Mm. PNG security guards, was that enough to change the policy? No, it was not. 12 or 13 people dying under our care in these prisons over the last five years, is that enough to change the policy? Apparently, no, it's not. Um, You know, um, uh, a stinging indictment from various international human rights bodies, there's been plenty of them, uh, Mm. you know, um, documented evidence that children are being uh, abused and raped on these prisons. Again, apparently we don't care. So it is very hard to be optimistic about this stuff. Very, Ben. Um, And it's something which I guess is uh, indicative of where our level of debate might get to in our election campaign that's coming up, given that uh, Scott Morrison has said it will come, the election day will be right after the budget, essentially a month or so afterwards. Look, it's going to get worse and worse because Morrison, um, whether or not other people believe this, Morrison believes he can win. Mm. So Morrison is a fighter 
and he is absolutely going to fight this till the end, and he is going to pull every trick he can, and he's going to play as dirty as he needs to, and that will be pretty dirty indeed. And you're seeing that not just with the refugee debate, but also with the government's attack on Labor's policy on dividend imputation, where they're consistently basically lying about Labor's policy um, and trying to frame it as a retirement tax. And I think, um, unfortunately, to some degree, it's starting to cut through. Um, People are starting to believe that uh, Labor wants to take money away from, uh, you know, uh, little old ladies with from, you know, taking their super away from Mm. them, which is... uh, which is not true. No, it's not at <laughs> all true. Not even close. Um, all Labor wants to do is to stop people getting free money from the government for the because they own shares. Yeah. That's, that's Labor's policy. Um, anyone who's on a pension, even a part pension, uh, will continue to receive this, so they'll be protected. It's really only self-funded retirees who have more than $850,000 in superannuation mm. and are receiving fully franked dividends and because of that, getting a free check from the ATO every year. So those are the only people being affected. The vast majority of them are extremely wealthy, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the coalition's obviously using that to try and attack Labor as anti-retiree, anti-pensioner, anti-old people, really. <laughs> it's quite absurd, and it hit a level of absurdity over the, well, the last few days, really. We've seen some pretty crazy scenes in the committee hearings that have been, or or what you could call the roadshow. Yes, the roadshow. So I think we touched on this a little bit last week, but Tim Wilson, who is the uh, Liberal MP who chairs the Economics Committee, has got up a roadshow where he's sort of taking the committee around the country Um, having hearings about the uh, dastardly impact of this proposed Labor policy. It isn't law. It's not even going to be law unless Labor become the next government. So it's an abusive process even to be having hearings into an opposition policy, I think. Yeah. Um, But there's also been revelations that Wilson has been sharing email addresses with a fellow called Jeff Wilson, who's a distant relative of Tim Wilson's. He's also the director of a thing called Wilson Asset Management. Now, this is a large investment company that, wait for it, has a lot of dividend imputation credits that mm. they return to their shareholders. Amazing. So, so Wilson uh, does a lot of business with people who have want to get fully frank shares into their portfolio and want to get some of these government payouts because of that. <coughs> um, and... What Labor's now investigating is whether Wilson, Tim Wilson has actually shared the email addresses of people who've signed up to his committee with this uh, corporate entity. Uh, in, if, he, if he has, then he could be in a little bit of trouble because that's yeah. a, potentially a breach of privacy. Well, to register to attend, you need to sign some kind of petition, which presumably you therefore give your details. That's right. So to, to register to attend, you had to sign a petition against the policy, <laughs> which Amazing. Uh, uh, some would argue is uh, not the most transparent of processes. But then it looks like those email addresses have then been shared mm. onto um, a, a, a private lobbyist, basically, um, a big business um, in the financial sector. So that's looking very dodgy indeed. And Tim Wilson's lost a little bit of skin because of that, uh, but the coalition's very happy with his performance on that because, of course, he's sticking it to Labor. And so I think this shows where the election campaign's going to go. It's going to get dirtier and dirtier. Yes, it is. And we've also discovered that uh, Wilson, Jeff Wilson said um, he they 
they did not fund or Wilson Asset Management did not fund StopTheRetirementTax.com, which is their special website oh, for the StopTheRetirementTax.com. Isn't it great? But yes. he admitted that he, quote, personally contributed to the website in the appropriate way along with a number of other concerned individuals. Yes, and uh, the other thing I forgot to mention is that Tim Wilson also uh, has investments in Wilson Asset Management. Ah, yes. So there's a direct conflict of interest there. Which he said is on the registry or the red interests register, so therefore he apparently has appropriately declared his conflict, but one would suggest you need to declare it at the hearings. Well, merely because it's declared doesn't prevent it from being a conflict of interest. I think what he needs to yeah. do is divest. He needs to actually sell those shares because currently he's leading an inquiry into Fully Frank's shares while owning Fully Frank's shares. It's an open and shut case of conflict of interest. And again, it demonstrates, I think, why the general public have so little trust in our parliamentarians. Mm. And there was a front cover story on the Daily Telegraph, which was like emblazoned, essentially, Labor cabinet ministers don't have fully franked, you know, shares or credits and therefore they don't have this conflict and it was some like major news story that apparently they don't have an interest in this particular um, story, whereas of course most of the coalition members do have a financial interest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, our parliamentarians as a class are very, very wealthy individuals, so mm. they have all sorts of financial interests. They own many houses, they own millions of dollars in share portfolios collectively. Um, you know, and it's worth remembering that, that these are the people voting on financial reform, for example, um, and that they themselves are quite wealthy individuals. And, and it's, always, it's always important to remember that, I think, when we think about the way policy is made. Exactly. Um, and in terms of this issue getting anywhere or going anywhere in terms of oversight, we obviously know that there isn't really a uh, federal ICAC to oversee such issues. There are other bodies that can kind of give people a slap on the wrist, but it has been referred to the AFP for review. Do you think that will, you know, result in anything? No. <laughs> uh, the Australian Federal Police have a long history of not investigating parliamentarians or the parliament in general. Um, they're quite a political organisation, the AFP. I don't think that that's any secret to people who follow politics closely. Mm. And whenever one of these things is referred to the AFP, generally what they do is say, oh, well, well, we're investigating it. And then about nine months later, when it's all blown over, they issue a quiet press release saying, oh, well, we've looked into it and there's nothing thing to see here. Uh, where Wilson might be in more trouble, ironically, is that someone's also complained to the ACCC. The ACCC has been a bit more activist in recent times and is, for example, having an inquiry into Google and Facebook at the moment. Mm. So um, the ACCC might look into whether Tim Wilson has breached the privacy of people or breached any of the competition or corporations law uh, by disclosing these email addresses to a private company. So as he might be in trouble there. But, you know, long term, I think he'll be fine, mm. you know, because ultimately this kind of hardball politics is rewarded in our political system, not punished. Exactly. Now, Ben, there was something or a policy announcement yesterday that um, I guess got a little bit of coverage, but not a lot. And it is um, the federal government's finally put a bit more money into domestic violence, particularly around women seeking refuge. So it's quite really at the front line in terms of emergencies. It's not necessarily as much about prevention, but more when you really need somewhere to go, here's a place to go. Uh, it's $78 million, but it's obviously not... 
uh, the same amount or even close to the same amount of funding that the Victorian state government has put in, which is like over a billion, I believe. Yes, as a, a Victorian Labor MP pointed out to me on Twitter yesterday, the Victorian government put $1.9 billion into family yep, violence. Yeah, so to, nearly two. Yeah, to yep. implement the recommendations of the Victorian Family Violence Royal Commission. So that's what leadership in this policy area looks like. The federal government put $78 million, and this comes after years of cuts to this area. Uh, so really, you can't take it too seriously. Look, it's welcome. Um, and we shouldn't be so cynical that we sh- shouldn't welcome any funding going to this area. Of course, mm. is to be applauded, but, uh, you know, it obviously pales into comparison to the scale of the problem. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, much more... Well, it's really complicated and there are so many elements that need to be funded, not just refuge and crisis centres. Absolutely. 1-800-RESPECT, the hotline, that's still not fully funded. Mm. Um, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I recommend reading Jane Gilmore, the journalist. Uh, she's always uh, got some excellent viewpoints and she's very, very well researched. I think mm. she's got an article in Fairfax about this um, yesterday, actually. Yes. Well, it is worth looking at, isn't it? Um, and Ben, the other thing that is worth mentioning is that we've had... The the start of the Aged Care Royal Commission uh, a, a day ago, essentially. It's already well yeah, and truly underway. It started yesterday, Amy. Yeah. Um, we're already hearing um, some really scary stories coming out of it. So I think that will be a little bit like the Financial Services Royal Commission. I think that will be another long journey into a pretty dark place in Australian public life. Mm. And uh, in terms of what we were discussing last week, we were talking about the report which had just been handed down overnight uh, from the Banking Royal Commission and we were talking about particularly the executives and individuals who had been, I guess, singled out, particularly at NAB. We saw then a day or so later that uh, Ken Henry, the chair, and Andrew Thorburn, the CEO, decided to resign. Um, It was a bit surprising, really, given that they were, even when they read the report, still saying, I don't really agree with what the commissioner says about me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thorburn and Henry tried to tough it out for about 24 hours, but uh, uh, I think they read the writing on the wall Mm. or um, maybe just read the report again carefully. (laughs) Uh, So, I mean, it was very scathing um, in criticism of them. So, yes, Henry and Thorburn both have stepped down. Um, But, you know, as I pointed out last week you know this is just the beginning in what will have to be a long road of reform Mm. um the federal parliament needs to actually pass some laws to deal with these recommendations uh the coalition's already say basically walking back on several of them they've they've already said they're not going to do anything about mortgage brokers so that's that's one recommendation that's dead already, at least for this government. Um, and moreover, considering how few sitting days there are until the next election, I don't think it's realistic that any of this will be voted on before the election. So we are really depending on an incoming government to make these recommendations law. Mm. Well, Christopher Pine said it would happen around September, perhaps, in terms of any legislation being uh, voted on. Yes, and I think that's realistic given the complexity of what's involved here and the fact that there aren't very many no. sitting days until the election. Well, they, so. The coalition government decided on having so few sitting days. Absolutely. Of course they did because they don't want to lose any votes in Parliament and they're at great risk of doing so. Um, so, yeah, look, I think um, much will depend on the incoming government and their stomach for reform. Uh, I think the public anger on this is not going away. 
Um, but the banks obviously can play a long game mm. and they will want to try and delay and delay and delay as long as possible. And then, you know, the further out this issue gets, then the happier the banks are. Well, it'll be interesting to watch. And obviously, once we get into the full swing of campaign mode, which I'm sure will happen after sitting. Happening now, I'd suggest. uh, Well, it's all unfolding, isn't it? Yeah, look, absolutely. It's going to start getting pretty willing pretty quickly. Yeah. so I think the, the, so. The, so the coalition's kind of regained a bit of confidence. Yeah, you know? they have. Um, I'm well, not quite compared tr- to the end of last year, where they basically were about to lose a vote. Yeah, so I think it's a little bit cornered rat. You know, they've, mm. they've basically their backs are against the wall, and they've got no choice but to fight. And they're going to pull out all stops. And so things like the retirement tax lie that really works for the coalition because it rallies their base of self-funded retirees, most of whom will already vote for the coalition. It has to be said, but it rallies the base around them and it gives them internal confidence to come out and fight the good fight. The polls, by the way, still show Labor well in front. But um, it's, a, it's all about a kind of internal confidence and uh, I think they've decided that they've thrown in their lot with Scott Morrison now mm. so they're going to back him. So it's, it's going to be... It's going to be pretty vicious and pretty dirty and um, get ready for plenty more dirty tricks over the next few weeks. Yes, and in terms of rallying the base, Ben, I believe um, there were quite a few videos going around uh, in terms of what happened at those committee inquiries and it seemed like people who opposed Labor's policy were very few and far between. Yes, um, so as part of this bandwagon that, that we mentioned that Tim Wilson's getting around the country, there's some of the journalists turned up to some of the, the hearings. There was one in, in Chatswood in the northern suburbs of Sydney, a um, fairly conservative, you know, green and leafy area of northern Sydney, um, and there was some amazing footage come out of that where we saw, you know, um, someone, a protester basically standing up and a uh, attacking Tim Wilson for mm. for the, the bandwagon and he was sort of shoved to the ground by an angry self-funded retiree. Um, somebody else stood up and said we could use these dividend imputation credits to fund public schools and, and that woman was booed by the crowd. <laughs> so um, I think gives you a kind of indication of, of where the, the self-funded retiree base is, if you yes. like. Yes. Yeah, they're definitely out in force. They are. They're pretty angry about this. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, we can understand why they're angry, that money is being taken out of their pockets. Yeah, um, and they thought they would have it for quite a, quite some time. There wasn't really a warning necessarily. Uh, well, <laughs> the warning is that Labor's announced it before the election and now they'll have a chance yes. to vote on it. Um, I think what they're angry about is really even the suggestion that any government could take away their goodies. You know, I think it plays into a certain kind of rhetoric that's strong, particularly in the right of Australian politics, Mm. which is that self-funded retirees are not a burden on the public purse uh, and also that they've worked hard, they've paid taxes all their life, therefore, you know, uh, anything they get from the government now is justified and well-deserved. Unfortunately, there's no policy justification for those points of view, as emotionally, intuitively uh, strong as they might mm. feel to the individuals. Well, it's not really the basis of a progressive tax system. No, it's it's fundamentally regressive, as the yes. stats show. So most of the benefit of this tax handout goes to very, very rich people. 
And of course, very rich people uh, have a voice uh, mm. and they can get organised and they've got, you know, a Liberal Party well and truly in their corner. So it will be a tough fight, I think, for Labor to win people over. What Labor needs to do is just to keep explaining how outrageous this, this lurk, this tax break mm. is. Yeah. You know, the idea of getting money from the ATO, getting a cheque from the ATO simply for owning shares, I think uh, most ordinary taxpayers will find that rather, you know, rather generous. Isn't it? It is rather generous. Uh, Ben, thank you for coming in to talk about federal politics and uh, we'll be back again. Yeah, thanks, Amy. Appreciate it. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me regularly to discuss federal politics. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM to speak to the wonderful Tim Flannery, who has written a book called Europe, A Natural History. He's written many books, um, some of which I'm sure you would be familiar with, and uh, they include Here on Earth, The Weathermakers and Atmosphere of Hope. He was the Australian of the Year in 2007 and is currently heading the Climate Council. Uh, He's a professor and an academic. He writes for public consumption for you and I, and this book is certainly very accessible. And I'm really excited to uh, welcome Tim Flannery now. Hi there, Tim. Hi, Amy. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for your time. And um, really, congratulations on a fascinating book that's exploring something so different. Um, It's certainly... It really opens up your imagination to think about the different creatures and animals and plants and uh, even continents and worlds that lived before us and uh, how really the Europe we see today is very different from that Europe um, that you you discover and talk about at the beginning of that book. Well, that's true, Amy. I I guess you can think about contemporary Europe as a continuation of that long story, you know, the 100 million year long story of how Europe has changed. And, you know, over that period, Europe's gone from a tropical archipelago in a a warm ocean full of dinosaurs um, right through to the Ice Age when there was woolly mammoths and all the rest of it, um, through to contemporary Europe, you know. So it's, it's a long journey. And over that period, Europe's reinvented itself at least three times, you know, with massive extinctions and then immigrations and, and so forth. So it really is a, it's a big picture story, I suppose. Yes. And many people would know your work, particularly the climate change work. But um, I was interested to see that you have a real love and passion for paleontology and fossils. And that was really a childhood um, passion that has evolved. So I'd just like to understand a bit about um, the reason why you got so, I guess, inspired by paleontology and and was that really part of the inspiration for this book? Well, it certainly was part of the inspiration for the book. Um, I've always loved fossils. I still remember finding my first fossil at the age of eight. I wasn't sure what it was. I took it into the museum and um, someone in there identified it as a fossilised sea urchin. And I remember being fascinated and thinking, my God, this was once a living animal on the bottom of a now-vanished sea, probably full of, you know, animals that have gone extinct as well. And it's that sense of imaginative wonder at lost worlds, I think, that that drives me um, to write books like Europe, because even though these worlds are lost and they're distant, we can still find relics of them today, not just as fossils, but even as living organisms in Europe, because there are some creatures that have survived in Europe since the age of the dinosaurs. Mm. They really are Europe's equivalent of the platypus. And could you share with us a couple of those? Sure. Look, one of my favourites is the midwife toad, 
which is a small amphibian. It's widespread in Europe. But what distinguishes it is that the male takes care of the eggs and the young. Um, so that, that's quite unusual for a, for a toad or a frog. Um, but that lineage, um, you know, those eyes that blink up at you from a, a midwife toad, the ancestors of those eyes blinked up at dinosaurs in Europe, mm. and they're a distinctively European group. Yes, I, I was struck by that story too, particularly how they look after them, which is like wrapping the eggs around their legs and carrying them with them for such a long period of time um, while they breed uh, a number of other times. That's right, and they can carry up to three lots of eggs with them at once, and um, they, they'll search around for the perfect pond to put the young into. And um, that you know, the water quality has to be right, that there's got to be no predators, it's sheltered and not liable to dry out. So, so it's quite a responsibility if you're a male midwife toad. Yeah, it's really impressive. Uh, it's probably a good role model yeah. for fatherhood. <laughs> well, exactly, and it's interesting it evolved in Europe, I must yeah. say. I find it quite fascinating that, that uh, you know, but doubtless that, that characteristics help the species survive every revolution and crisis for the last you know, 100 million years. Yes, and what's also interesting is the fact that they secrete natural antibiotics from their skin to protect uh, these eggs from infection. It's just fascinating how nature provides for these situations. It is. What looks like a little fragile creature actually has this whole armament of behaviours and physiologies and chemistries to help it get into the next generation. Mm. And in terms of the span of time that this book covers, could you give us an idea of the scale of the span of time we're talking about? Because it's often quite hard for people to relate to things when we're in the millions and millions and hundreds of millions of years. That's right. Look, I wanted, I asked the question, where did Europe begin? And if you ask that question, you I trawl back through the scientific literature trying to find the moment when the first distinctively European organisms evolved. And it turns out that that was about 100 million years ago. And those organisms evolved on a tropical archipelago that was much more like the Solomon Islands today than, than contemporary Europe. It was a series of, um, of tropical isles full of dinosaurs, the ancestors of the midwife toad, which were some of the very first European creatures to evolve, um, ancient birds, ancient mammals. The seas were full of um, marine reptiles. Uh, it was a very, very different place. It was the place, actually, that gave rise to the cliffs of Dover, you know, those lovely white cliffs. Mm. They're all... They're all formed from the remains of organisms that, that thrived in the tropical sea that surrounded that ancient archipelago and were chewed up by predators and then pooed out and the fragments formed the, the chalk. It is really fascinating to think that um, not all of Europe was formed in one go. I mean, a lot of people might assume that, for example, the Alps were there from the beginning of time or at least the, the part of the way that they appeared today were there. But in fact, the Alps really came quite a lot later on, didn't they? They did. They, they had an early period of, um, of rejuvenation, you know, perhaps 90 million years ago when they were the tips of tropical islands but then things became quiet and it was only really about 30 million years ago that they started to really start building again and the reason of course the Alps are there is that Africa has been pushing into Europe with unimaginable geological force and bits of Africa have actually slid off and become incorporated into Europe mm. so if you look at at some of the highest peaks uh, in, in, in the Alps um, like the Matterhorn you know, the very tip of that is actually a part of Africa that's slid over the top of Europe 
and ended up as part of the highest point on the Alps. It's amazing. And part of the um, the real interest of this book is the fact that you draw out where the connections were at various points of time between um, these big land masses. So, you know, parts of Europe were connected to uh, Africa or Asia at various points in time and that then facilitated, I guess, the, the species crossing over to different um, areas and then thriving or not so, um, perhaps not surviving in those climates and, and different environments. Well, that's right. I mean, the interesting thing about the ancient European archipelago is that it was the exchange or natural crossroads between three of the largest land masses on our planet, you know, Asia, Africa and North America. And, and it, it, Europe has been repopulated and formed by immigration from those land masses since its first moment. Um, you know, just to give you one example of, of, of that is, is our own human lineage. I mean, the apes arose in Africa about 25 million years ago. But by 13 million years ago, certain apes had got into Europe and were flourishing. They then went extinct in Africa. So the only apes that our ancestors we had were in, in Europe. And one lineage in Greece about 7 million years ago started to walk upright. Mm. And the descendants of those upright walkers walked back into Africa to give rise to our lineage. So often the, the interactions are complex, but they're really fascinating to see how this perpetual migration has formed the Europe we know today. Yes, and just how interconnected we are despite how we kind of cordon ourselves off nowadays with borders. Well, the, the very essence of of. Europe is, is migration and mm. hybridisation. Our own European species results from you know, African migrants who were just like African people living today, getting to the borders of Europe 38,000 years ago and then hybridising with the Neanderthals. So the reason we have, some of us have, blue eyes and blonde hair are those Neanderthal genes that, um, that were preserved with that hybridisation event. And, yes. um, and so from the very beginning, Africans and Europeans hybridising have given rise to the Europeans we know today. And that process of migration is just ongoing. That is the essence of Europe. It's the essence of Europe's success and it's the essence of the story of the continent from its very beginnings. Mm, and it's a story that perhaps needs to be told a bit more in our current day um, and it certainly would help some of our social issues that we uh, confront. But I'd like to talk about hybridisation given you mentioned that you um, have in interviews mentioned how a lot of people would think perhaps hybridisation isn't necessarily um, a good thing but in your case or when you draw out examples there are many great examples um, for animals and others where you, we have really benefited um, evolutionary, evolutionarily by hybridisation? Well, that's right. I mean, the new emerging view of hybridisation is that it's a mechanism that allows species to share genes that may be beneficial in new environments. So that example of us humans is a good one. You can imagine those African people migrating up into chilly, um, dark Europe uh, with, their, with their dark skins. They're unable to synthesise sufficient vitamin D. But if they hybridise with Neanderthals who were pale-skinned, blue-eyed and red-haired and get some of that genetic inheritance into their descendants, those descendants will do much better because they won't suffer from rickets or vitamin deficiency. So that's just one simple example. The elephants have done the same thing. The hyenas have done the same thing. Almost every lineage we've looked at in Europe has benefited from that hybridisation process. 
Yes. Um, and one of the uh, particularly surprising events that you describe in a really great um, imaginative and quite literary way is the um, this big catastrophe that happened whereby um, a bolide struck the earth and essentially created this massive um, disruption in so many different natural processes across the entire earth um, I really wasn't aware of the extent of, of what happened and the, the lasting effects it had. Could you share with us um, some of what had happened and when it was? Sure. Look, that is going way back into the story to 66 million years ago when um, Europe was a tropical archipelago inhabited by dinosaurs as its largest creatures. Um, and a bolide or an asteroid from space, a very large one, probably 20 kilometres across, crashed into North America and that created um, a series of things from massive wildfires to changes in ocean chemistry to um, a nuclear winter that destroyed most of the large animals and plants on the planet. And Europe was, was within a few thousand kilometres, perhaps four or five thousand kilometres of that asteroid strike, So, which in Earth terms is pretty close. Mm. So um, it was absolutely devastated. Everything on the surface of Europe was destroyed. A few burrowing and tunnelling creatures survived. Some seeds survived. But, of course, all the insects that lived in the trees were killed. Um, so when the trees grew back, the forests of ancient Europe were extraordinarily dense and tall and dark and silent. Um, yeah. Because there was no insect predators, there was nothing to eat the leaves. Um, you can imagine it in that tropical environment. And, and the creatures took a surprisingly long time to give up their subterranean habits. <laughs> there was um, lots of small burrowing things, mammals, lizards, and uh, frogs, midwife toads, of course, you know, surviving for 10 million years after that. So, mm. you know, if you'd imagine visiting Europe at that time, it would have been a bit like the great forests of Borneo in historic times, you know, those dark forests with their luminescent fungi but without any of the large animals or birds, just these silent realms. Yeah, it, it's really eerie. Um, and you can imagine, I guess, what it would have been like to encounter such a world. Um, and particularly what is was surprising when, when I read it was the fact that actually um, that event reduced the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth by as much as 20% and uh, photosynthesis couldn't occur for quite a long time. So it's amazing that those kind of processes were stopped but then regained after many, many, many years. That's right. And, you know, a lot of species survived either as seeds, long-lasting seeds in the soil, or in the waterways, the fresh waters, because uh, fresh waters carry detritus, and then you can have bacteria that don't depend on photosynthesis that can break down that detritus and form the basis of a food chain for things like salamanders and toads and, and crocodiles and so forth. Mm. So it was a very severe devastation, and only the only the most protected areas really survived, in the Northern Hemisphere at least. Yes. I'm speaking with Tim Flannery, who is the author of Europe, A Natural History, which is out through text publishing. Uh, Tim, I was surprised to hear about um, Europe's legacy in regards to coral reefs. Um, certainly, as an Australian, I would associate coral reefs with, you know, Pacific islands or um, tropical islands and that, that kind of environment. You've already mentioned there that the archipelago was quite uh, similar to tropical islands. What is that special legacy that uh, Europe has with coral reefs? 
again, it's, it was astonishing to me when I started researching the book that, you know, I went to the British Museum, there was a grey steel cabinet there, a curator opened it, pulled out a box with this nondescript lump in it and said this is the earliest uh, coral of the kinds of corals that form the ramparts of the tropical reefs today. Mm. And I was amazed. It had been actually named by another Australian researcher who's one of the world's great coral reef experts. But that coral's 40 million years old, you know, and it was growing on the south coast of England at the time. And I, my wonder was only increased when I went to Italy to a place called Monte Volca where there's a whole fish fauna preserved just immaculately preserved you can see the colours in some of the fish still and some of them are enormous they're two metres long but they're all fish you'd see on tropical reefs today and they are the earliest evidence we have of, uh, of, of that fish fauna or the assemblage that lived in the coral reefs and that's probably 50 million years old Mm. It, it's really fascinating and uh, yeah I did actually Google Southampton because I wanted to visualise what on earth this place looks like nowadays but um, it certainly didn't look to me like a coral reef hotspot so it's amazing really. No. Well you've got to project your mind back and think Southampton yeah. back then was facing the Atlantic with great breakers coming in from a much warmer sea than today onto an abrupt coast which is of course just what coral reefs love you know mm. that sort of environment and you can imagine the, the, those reef-forming corals forming this rampart uh, to protect the coast. Yes, and one of the um, really important periods of time that you talk about is um, the Miocene, I think it's pronounced, hopefully, and it's um, it really is, it, or it sounds like a very important period whereby there was a lot of flourishing happening and uh, development. What makes the Miocene so distinctive and important? Well, look, I think of it as being Europe's period of being a Garden of Eden, really. It was, um, if you look at the fossils that were in Europe from, say, 10 million years ago in the middle of the Miocene, they're pretty similar to the sort of things you'd find growing in Kenya 10 million years ago, you know. And I call it a Garden of Eden for good reason, because it was exceptionally diverse in terms of birds and animals, with things like hummingbirds that you wouldn't expect in Europe, um, and, and elephants and rhinos, a great abundance of rhinos. But among all of that, by seven million years ago, were our first upright ancestors. So in a sense, the birthplace of our lineage, if you think of us as being the upright apes, was that Miocene Europe. Mm. Yes, it is. And there's like a range of um, fascinating topics in the Miocene that you um, uncover and the different uh, trees and vegetables such as, um, is it the dragon tree, which is um, the sap is looks like dragon's blood? That's correct. And you can still see that tree growing today in the Canary Islands. And you know, if you want to see a little living remnant of Miocene Europe, you can't do much better than the Canary Islands. Many of the tree species that flourished in Europe at the time survive on the Canary Islands. Tragically, hardly any of the animals do because the Canary Islands were never connected with Europe. So the seeds that came in the Miocene came on the feet of birds or drifting across the sea, whereas not many animals made it. But one species did, which is a giant lizard, mm. a metre long that would have greeted the first human inhabitants, the Carthaginians, uh, when they arrived on uh, the, the Canary Islands a couple of millennia ago. Yes, and uh, you raise it towards the end of the book, um, the different species that have come and gone, um, and certainly the way you describe those that we now 
don't get to see because they, they're not existent. They're obviously, some of them are existent in fossil form. Um, but, you know, you talk a little bit about um, extinct species and genetic restoration and how feasible that is. I've certainly, um, you know, spoken with a, a person about that before and it seemed like it was a particularly difficult thing when you don't have um, live or um you know, viable tissue to to base things on, and you've really only got incomplete DNA sequences. But you know, are there, I guess, plans to bring back or at least, um, you know, look into the DNA and understand better the the types of species that are extinct and perhaps capture our imagination? Yes. Look, um, it's a question that has been really transformed by recent understandings of the extent of hybridisation. And just to give you one example, um, Europe's forest elephant flourished throughout Europe for a million years before our um, species drove it extinct. You know, humans have, have been really tough on elephants over most of the world, and tragically, the last of Europe's forest elephants went extinct on some of the Mediterranean islands, perhaps as little as five or 7,000 years ago. But people have recovered genes from those forest elephants, and they've discovered the most astonishing thing that 40% of the genetic inheritance of those forest elements from elephants from Europe are actually from African forest elephants, which is amazing. Another 40% comes from the ancestral African elephant that we're all familiar with, and another 20% comes from Indian elephants and from woolly mammoths. So if you're thinking about reconstituting Europe's forest elephant, you couldn't do much better than go to the African forest elephants of today and start there because almost half of the genetic inheritance of the species is present in those those animals. That's fascinating. Mm. It sounds like it, things are developing quite quickly along that um, that scientific path. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, when I speak to people about elephants back in Europe, people said there's no space. And I say, well, the truth of the matter is that Africa's forest element, elephants are going extinct very quickly. Yeah. By the end of this century, there'll be four billion people in Africa. And um, Europe is, mean, in the meantime, becoming depopulated. So, you know, there's 20 million hectares of abandoned land uh, going to be created in Europe over the next decade. And there's already vast areas of abandoned land. Mm. So if we think big about this and think about where we may create a refuge for the endangered megafauna of the world, uh, Europe's not a bad place to start. That's a really great argument to make. Um, certainly, it is really tragic to see so many different species going extinct uh, in Africa, and at least um, those that are endangered are really, truly in trouble. Um, and as we've seen just recently, even insects, there are so many that are um, under threat. Uh, so, yeah, there's just a lot of issues that are still present today that um, this book really draws out. Uh, and I think it's fascinating to see just how, um, you know, we've evolved and how things are similar and dissimilar. Um, so I think it's a really great contribution. Um, Tim, what were you hoping, I guess, to do when you were um, researching this book? Were you looking to, I guess, inspire people's imagination or get them passionate about conservation? Did you have any kind of aims in mind um, when putting together such a, a thorough and um, fascinating book? Well, I, my first aim really was to understand myself, what Europe was about. Mm. So I always I write out of great curiosity and I'm a bit selfish, I suppose, in that I write the book I want to read. <laughs> I want to understand this, this whole big story, you see. 
Um, and as the, as the story evolved and I began to comprehend it, I realised there was actually several stories in one. There's the story of the discovery of Europe, Europe's fossil record, which is amazing in itself. There's the multiple changes in Europe. And then there is the reference to the great challenges Europe faces today in terms of things like its insect extinctions and its rewilding programs and, and what Europe is. What Europeans are struggling to comprehend their place in the world and that idea that they are the children of immigrants and that migration and hybridisation have been the great constants in Europe ever since the moment it first formed are really important, I think, in terms of us calibrating or Europeans calibrating their place in the world and what their future might be. Yes, that's a really great point. There's certainly a number of countries having a bit of an identity crisis and also um, a crisis when it comes to immigration. So, yeah, it's a fascinating um, real echo and a great story to be told um, and to retell and hopefully uh, that will happen in Europe. Are you going to be um, travelling there or have you been sharing that story with um, those in Europe? Look, I've, I've been going to Europe for 30 years, right, researching this book and trying to collect the facts and figures I need. And I will be going back in June to talk to Europeans about this. Um, and my message to them is the one great danger that has always presented itself to Europe is this concept of purity. Mm. Yeah. Um, there is no such thing as purity. The very essence of Europe is, in fact, uh, exchange, hybridisation, um, massive environmental shifts. This is what Europe's about, really. So ideas of purity are, in fact, the great danger, as, we, as we've seen from Nazism. And mm. uh, th- those, are the, those are the failed versions of Europe. Exactly. Tim, uh, you've really just highlighted how important history is to us today, and uh, I really appreciate what you've done in this book and also for taking the time to explain it and hopefully inspire some of us to read more. So thank you so much for that and congratulations. Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure being with you. I've been speaking to the wonderful Tim Flannery, who is a professor at the university. Well, he was a professor at the University of Adelaide and many others. He's visited Harvard University. Uh, He's presented a range of shows and documentaries. He's written many books. He's a scientist and a historian, and he was Australian of the Year in 2007. So a busy man and a very curious one. And that is um, obviously what makes him work so well and, uh, and create such great books. So if you wanted to look into what we've been discussing, you can pick up a copy of Europe, A Natural History, which is by Tim Flannery, and it's out through text publishing. You're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. This is Johan Hari, the author of the book Lost Connections, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins on 3RRR. You're tuned in to 3RRR-FM in Melbourne. This is Uncommon Sense. For the next 20 or so minutes, I'm speaking with Dr Tamara Wood. She's a lecturer in law at the University of Tasmania. She's an affiliate at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, which is at UNSW. Uh, It's a very well-known centre, in fact, um, and certainly there's a lot of important work happening in this area in the academic field. And Tamara is joining me me from Sydney on the phone and we are speaking about uh, a particular issue um, that has come to light very very recently in terms of its public exposure um, 
and and it certainly made worldwide headlines uh, when Rahaf Mohammed was seeking asylum. Um, she was from Saudi Arabia, the daughter of a quite prominent uh, person who was um, had aff- affiliations with the Saudi government and uh, she was seeking asylum. She got to Thailand. Her next uh, stop was Australia, but uh, she had her visa cancelled when she got to Thailand and uh, they were basically trying to get her on the next plane back to Kuwait, which is where she was holidaying with her family. So um, as we've seen, there's been more to come out from that and uh, we saw a great reporting from Sophie McNeil of the ABC on Four Corners and we've seen um, that now at least two young Saudi women who arrived at Sydney Airport in the past two years were turned back after making their asylum claims clear to Australian officials. So to give me a better understanding of the legal requirements and obligations of the Australian government but also others who are part of this process, the airlines, other countries, um, perhaps middle countries that are in the transit country to the place that they are seeking asylum, I'm now joined by Dr Tamara Wood. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for your time. And um, certainly the, the issue that really captured everyone's imagination was Rahaf Muhammad who um, used Twitter to great effect and had uh, obviously people who helped amplify her message like Mona El-Tahawi who um, is a a well-known author and feminist and uh, her case really did um, get people interested in this issue more and it it certainly led to further investigation and inquiry by journalists. Um, Could you, I guess, share with us why why this might have um, really garnered our attention and the legal issues that it raised and we'll delve a bit deep, more deeply into those as we go along. Sure. So I think the reason it's garnered the attention is the use of social media that you've just described and the involvement of a few high-profile figures. Um, in terms of the legal issues that it involves, in some ways, Rahaf's case was not very unique. Um, this sort of thing um, happens quite ty- typically that people who leave their countries or leave a situation where they're at risk of harm to set, travel to seek protection may have to stop at multiple points um, along the way before they get to somewhere that is safe. Um, and it's quite important that at each of those points, the countries where they stop um, have obligations towards those people. Um, and the most important one is the obligation of non-refoulement. This is a very well-established obligation in international law that is owed by Australia and by other countries not to return a person to a situation where they would be at risk of persecution or other serious threats to their life or liberty. So Australia owes that obligation um, not to return people to those situations, but so do countries like Thailand. For countries like Australia, we've actually voluntarily signed up to a number of treaties that enshrine that obligation. So the Refugee Convention um, is one. There are other human rights treaties as well. But it's actually such an important obligation in international law that it applies to all countries as a matter of customary international law. So that means countries worldwide are so... um, have endorsed this principle so much that even if you haven't signed a treaty um, that commits you to doing this, states still owe this obligation to people in their territory. And I think the really, I guess, the the more complicated issue in cases like Rahaf al-Qanun is that it's quite clear when a, if you enter a country that that obligation is 
owed. So it's quite clear that if you're in the Thai airport, Thailand should not return you, or if you arrive in Australia, Australia should not return you. But the important thing about that obligation is that it applies even outside the country's territory if the country is taking steps um, that assert, con- assert control over a person. So if Australian officers are intercepting people at airports or indeed you know, on the high seas, that obligation is triggered there as well. Um, and that's why it's really important to think about Australia's actions in the Thai airport or in the Hong Kong airport because it's international law obligations to protect human rights and particularly the, the obligation of non-reform won't extend there as well. Yes, and how does that international law get enforced? Um, because that's obviously an important uh, reason that people might or countries might comply. Sure. So, unfortunately, in some respects, international law is not like domestic law. We don't, you know, we have the UN and we have um, a number of very important and often very powerful um, means of exerting political influence. Um, You know, states voluntarily sign up to these obligations because they realise it's important. They realise it's an important part of being a good global citizen. When countries don't adhere to those obligations, we find ourselves in a bit of strife, though, because there's not often a very direct means um, of enforcing them. And that's why, for Rahaf, for example, the international pressure that comes to bear when you have the use of social media becomes really quite critical. I think one of the important things, though, is that, you know, Australia has its own domestic laws that govern the way it deals with immigration and it you know it has its own policies that um, govern the way it works in in other states airports and in most cases Australia acts within those those laws but where those laws are inconsistent with international law that's not that doesn't make it okay so international law is quite clear that just because um, Australian law says one thing if that leads to breaches of international law um, then that sort of no defence. And in fact, one of the issues here is that Australia has done quite a lot to make sure um, that its domestic law allows it to do whatever it wants to do and without having to do regard um, to international law. So, for example, Australian law makes it, you know, nearly impossible to lawfully travel to Australia and seek protection. And so, for example... Does that mean there are other types of visas that people might utilise or apply for that um, would get them to their desired country and then they might try to seek asylum? Sure. So every country has its own visa regime. So some countries will allow many people in without a visa um, and some countries have much stricter requirements. Um, Australia has some of, if not the most um, strict visa requirements in the world. Basically, every person who's not a citizen of Australia requires a visa to come here. The problem for people seeking protection is that there is no asylum seeker visa. There is no refugee visa. There's no visa that you can get if you want to come to Australia to seek protection. So you have to get a different visa if you want to travel by a plane. The problem there, though, is that the visas that people, you know, provided first that they have a passport and have the means to apply for a visa, the visas that most people apply for might be short-term business visas or student visas or tourist visas, and it is an explicit condition of those visas that an in-person intends to stay only temporarily in the country. So this is basically the only means of travelling by air to Australia for someone seeking protection. 
the problem is that it essentially requires them to obtain that visa under false pretenses. So Australia has basically made it um, impossible for someone to lawfully apply for one of those visas um, and come here to seek protection. And this is why people who are intercepted en route, or it would seem perhaps even people who have arrived in an Australian airport and are then intercepted, as soon as there is any evidence that they intend to seek asylum, that is taken to be evidence that they don't intend to stay in Australia temporarily and therefore that they are not eligible for the visa that they have travelled on um, and therefore that's grounds for the Australian government to cancel that visa. Now that is presumably what happened to Rahaf Al-Kunun. She had a visa to travel to Australia. When she made her appeals via social media, it was clear that she didn't intend to only stay temporarily, that in fact she was seeking protection. Therefore she didn't qualify for the visa that she had and therefore the government cancelled it. Yes, and it seems like that is real, the real crux of things is, um, and it's come up in a range of cases, is that uh, once they get to Australia, and it's quite impressive if they even get to that point, um, they can be questioned by border officials and uh, certainly many people who go travelling overseas would be familiar with the types of questions you get asked at various countries to say, what's the purpose of your visit? Do you have you know, money here? Are you going to be working? All those kinds of questions. Um, but that, that Australia border force and we've seen this through the four corners report have allegedly been asking other questions of um, particularly Saudi women and one of those questions which I think really shocked a number of Australians when they heard of this um, was that apparently they had asked for the phone numbers of women's male guardians when they were not being accompanied by a male guardian which of, of course is Saudi uh, domestic law but it is not obviously Australian law and it's not international law um, and I guess that's what has surprised a lot of people do you think that's um is there a legal or ethical line that one might be crossing by asking such a question i think the ethical lines are probably fairly clear um uh, you know i think that's clearly something that doesn't conform to what we expect um of you know individual rights and freedoms and and people's ability to make their own decisions to travel so there's certainly a, a level of fundamental inappropriateness about that in terms of the legal issues that that it raises there's this is part of the fairly common practice these sorts of questions that have been reported are, far, are part of the fairly common practice of trying to ascertain um whether or not someone actually intends to seek asylum so customs officials might do various things they might ask various questions to try to work this out they might look through people's belongings look for diary entries for example um that suggest that that's what a person intends to do um thereby as i've just talked about meaning that they could cancel their visa one of the issues here i guess is that if a saudi woman is traveling alone outside of her country that almost instantly um, draws her to attention because it is known that that is very difficult to do and I guess that to a, a customs official is kind of prima facie evidence that perhaps there's something else going on here um, because this is not the way you would usually expect someone to travel. So I think while those particular questions seem particularly inappropriate, um, I think there's all sorts of they are really part of the broader practice that captures so many more people, not only Saudi women, um, who are actually looking for protection um, and serves to try to prevent them from getting it. It seems to be taking it 
one step further by actually demanding or requesting the phone number of a family member, particularly a male guardian, though. Is that something which they have to provide if they're requested? I think that is a particularly concerning part of it and the reason being that if a person, if a, a woman is fleeing because she's at risk um, from her family, as often is the case for women seeking protection from Saudi Arabia, often the, the fear doesn't relate necessarily to the actions of the government but often to the people who are closest to them. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, actions by Australian officials to try to contact the very people that that a woman might be fleeing um, are extraordinarily <laughs> inappropriate because they serve to put her at risk, um, even more risk than she than she already is at. And mm-hmm. that could be both if she's subsequently returned, any risk that she may have faced um, may increase, um, or even if she is, you know, eventually granted protection in Australia, that contact tells her potential persecutors a lot about where she is and what she's doing. So that's not only an example of Australia not upholding its its human rights obligations, it's also an example of Australia potentially putting people um, at the very risk that they should be protecting people from. Yes, and we saw um, Rahaf's family and others who knew her finding out she was in a Thai hotel room and then many people trying to coax her out of that room uh, in order to hopefully get her back on the plane. Um, She obviously didn't, but any person, young person particularly, she was only 18, put in that situation might feel, you know, the pressure and coercion um, in those kinds of situations that probably shouldn't be happening, I'm guessing, if they were following international law. Um, You know, is there some kind of, I guess, um, rule that can be followed or, like, process that can be enacted by uh, an asylum seeker, even if they reach that um, middle country? So there's, I mean, a lot of people end up in Indonesia or Thailand, for example. Um, If they're stuck in that country, how might they um, seek asylum from there this is one of the fundamental problems is that often there is no clear way um, of doing that and you know we can see from the situation with Rahaf that just because you've escaped the country that where you were at risk doesn't mean you've escaped the risk itself that it might follow you and this is why it's quite important to look at the actions of Australia in other countries as well Um, because by cancelling a person's visa they might clearly be putting the person at more risk depends really in terms of what a person can can do in that situation it really depends which country they've landed in one of the issues in this region is that in the Asia Pacific there are not a lot of countries that have signed up to the Refugee Convention and there are not a lot of countries that very actively implement their non-reformant obligations. So people who stop in Thailand, in Indonesia, don't have access to a clear, robust uh, system for putting forward their protection claims um, and being awarded protection. Often, and as is the case um, for Rahaf Al-Kanun, they are referred to UNHCR. So UNHCR in many of these countries has quite an active presence, um, particularly in countries that do not have strong refugee protection systems. They sort of supplement that and they're able to um, take action to determine whether or not a person is a refugee um, and hopefully to advocate for their not being returned um, to the country from where they have fled. The big problem here, though, is that UNHCR can't 
actually give a person lasting protection. They can't give them a visa to Thailand. They can't ensure that they um, will be safe, that they will be able to rebuild their lives or all of those sorts of things. They can, you know, only a country itself can actually do that. The one system that UNHCR does manage is the resettlement system. And it was through resettlement that Rahaf al was able to transfer then to Canada um, and get get proper protection um, and you know Australia has a good resettlement program with UNHCR so this is a potential route for someone who you know is stuck in one of those transit countries where they're not safe just right where they are um, but where UNHCR might be able to at least determine that they are in fact a refugee um, and potentially to access resettlement. The real problem though is that less than one percent of the world's refugees get resettled. Um, so 99% of the people who do that end up stuck in a sort of limbo situation where they're in a country um, where they're not really protected, where they don't have their full range of rights and they're not actually able to rebuild their lives, but they have no option to go anywhere else. And that's why it's really important for us to not rely on resettlement as the answer because it's a very, very limited resource and the vast majority of refugees will not be able to access it. Yes, and certainly in other interviews I've done about um, people seeking asylum who are perhaps uh, residing at at that point in Indonesia, um, it takes a very long time to go through the process with the UNHCR of them determining whether you you are a refugee or not. Um, And so obviously in this particular case, it seems that they've expedited the process uh, not only on the UNHCR end, but also on um, Canada's end. Australia seemed to be um, not in a hurry and would have followed, I guess, the same kind of process that they would follow for anyone else. That's true. Um, There is, within the worldwide resettlement program that UNHCR manages, there is a sort of stream, I guess, called emergency resettlement. Um, And a number of countries, Australia and Canada both included, do provide particular places for refugees who need to be resettled quite urgently, you know, within the space of a day or a week, um, and who you know, whose life will be imminently at risk if that doesn't happen. Mm. So in some respects, what happened for Rahaf Al-Kanun is not unprecedented. You know, there are systems there designed. Um, Clearly, she was at very imminent risk in Thailand. She needed to be moved quickly. Canada has some um, mechanisms for doing that a bit more quickly than Australia. So, for example, Australia historically has always insisted that various security and health checks and things like that be done before a person is relocated to Australia. Um, That obviously takes time, whereas in the past, so for example, for Syrian refugees, uh, Canada has been prepared to waive that requirement and to allow someone to travel straight away with the view to doing the relevant checks um, after they've arrived. So it's, again, it's a, you know, it's a minuscule proportion of that 1% Mm. that will get to benefit from emergency resettlement, but it is a system that's there and it's designed to work for cases exactly like this. So it was, you know, it wasn't a sort of ad hoc, purely politically driven arrangement, there's a system there for it, but 
it's very rare that that happens. Yeah, it's obviously reserved for those extreme situations. Um, And so in terms of the the Saudi women who it's been alleged were turned back when it was discovered that they had an intention to seek asylum, um, you know, is that a a kind of grey area to determine someone's intention when um, perhaps the person who is coming into Australia might deny that that was their intention? How much hard evidence do you actually need to prove someone had that intent? I guess, you know, ultimately Australia um, decides on what kind of visas it's prepared to offer people to come here. You know, that's part of every country's right, in a sense, is to decide um, who comes and it gets to decide what the conditions of those visas are and whether a person satisfies them. Um, in most cases, those sorts of decisions, though, can can be challenged, you know. But, I mean, they can get it wrong. Of course, they can decide that someone intends to do this when they don't um, and vice versa. So, you know, if your application is rejected from abroad or if you, you know, have troubles once you're in Australia in terms of your application, there are various checks in place uh, to to enable you to challenge that or to submit further evidence, etc. When that happens by a customs official before you've even cleared the border, as has been reported um, on Four Corners, a lot of those checks do not operate either at all or at least not very effectively. So, you know, often being able to pursue um, a challenge or to, you know, challenge a decision like that, you're probably going to need legal advice. At the very least, you're going to need um, access to, you know, the mechanisms for doing that. So when these things happen in foreign airports or when they happen before a person has cleared the border and before they're able to access a lawyer or a community organisation or someone to help them, it's going to be nearly impossible for them to do that. Yeah, it sounds like it certainly gets complicated and also more complicated if you're not um, really fully informed of the rights that you might have under particular laws, international and domestic, but also, you know, what the processes are, because I guess every country perhaps is different. Um, I have noted the other um, player or stakeholder in this are the airlines as well, and they don't, don't they have a certain obligation um, in kind of checking uh, visas as well? They do. So they have one that has been created under Australian law. What is quite important is under international law, airlines do not have obligations. You know, countries, governments have obligations under international law um, and they are responsible for making sure that they're upheld. But under Australian law, Australia has imposed penalties, particularly financial penalties, on airlines who bring to Australia people who may not have the correct documentation, you know, if they're travelling on a false passport or the wrong visa, etc. So really what Australia is trying to do there is to to outsource these kind of um, measures that are really... I mean, these are very deliberate attempts by the government to stop people seeking protection from getting to Australia. This is not an incidental effect of them. It is why they're designed the way they are. And as well as implementing you know, activities like, you know, sending airline liaison officers into airports, they're in creating incentives or, you know, penalties for airlines to to implement um, those those activities as well. So this means that airlines have a very, very strong incentive 
to conduct their own checks and to perhaps identify people who might be going to seek protection as well. Yeah, it's certainly surprising that that's, I guess, something that Australia um, has put in place. Are there any other countries who followed suit? Australia is certainly not uh, alone in these sorts of practices. There are many other, you know, usually Western developed countries that have implemented these sorts of things with the idea being that if we can stop people from arriving in our territory, then we don't have to um, fulfil our obligations Mm -hmm. to them. Um, You know, for example, the activities of European countries in African states are very well documented and almost notorious in trying to prevent people from leaving their their own countries or leaving transit countries um, to reach their borders. So there's not a lot that Australia does in this regard that is totally unique, Um, though Australia is arguably one of, you know, is very active in Mm. pursuing these policies. Yes, and I know that particular area is one of your areas of research. Um, Is it the case that those um, countries, European countries, have cracked down in more recent times on arrivals? Um, I know there's been a lot of arrivals over the ocean and that's something which um, some of the Mediterranean countries were more compassionate on and don't seem to be as compassionate in recent times? I think you know, there's there's been a lot said about the European migration so-called crisis, um, which you know, as keeps being repeated, is more of a political crisis than a than a refugee crisis. And but certainly, the the numbers of people that have arrived in recent years in Europe has affected government policies there. There's no question. Um, one of the things that can be quite hard to tease out in terms of what countries do is that often activities that really are aimed at preventing people um, from seeking protection can be sort of dressed up as as more positive activities. So, you know, states can say, governments can say that they're helping governments in Africa to implement their own protection mechanisms and they're helping to do capacity building with African governments to address refugee and asylum issues. But often the the sort of that in part may be true, but it's conditioned on the idea that that will thereby prevent people from from travelling onwards. And that's where it can be hard to tease out what what is a, a positive step for refugees and what what is not. Um, and I think the the important thing really is that by all means, capacity building and supporting um, developing or you know developing countries, um, whether it's, you know, in Africa or in the Asia-Pacific, to do better, you know, so that people who arrive in Thailand or arrive in Indonesia are better able to be protected there um, is a wonderful thing and is a thing that countries like Australia or countries in Europe should be doing. But it should not be at the expense of actually protecting the people who arrive. This is the fundamental purpose of of refugee protection and this is the reason that the Refugee Convention was set up. was after World War Two, lots of Jews trying to flee Germany were turned back at the borders of other countries because they didn't have the right documentation, and the you know the world got together and said we never want this to happen again, uh, and the Refugee Convention was was born out of that, 
and that seems to have been forgotten, that the whole idea that people will travel irregularly, that they will arrive without the right papers um, and without even having prior approval is the very purpose of the Refugee Convention. So all the other things that countries do that might be positive towards improving protection worldwide should not be at the expense of protecting the people who come to them seeking it. Mm, that's a really great point and um, a bit of nuance, I think, in what is often a, a really polarising debate um, on both sides. So I really appreciate you bringing in the evidence uh, for us today so that we can better understand it and um, be better informed. Tamara, thank you for your time. And I know that you, um, the Caldor Centre is hosting an event, um, a panel discussion in Sydney uh, with Professor Guy Goodwin-Gill, who's chairing, and Sophie McNeil, the ABC uh, journalist who was with Rahaf in Thailand, um, a UNHCR representative, and one of your colleagues at the Caldor Centre, Dr Higgins. So that's tomorrow night if uh, any of our Sydney listeners are around and wanting to engage in this issue more. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Tamara. That was Dr Tamara Wood, who is a lecturer in law at the University of Tasmania and she's also affiliated with and is an affiliate at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRR-FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.